Hello from Austin and welcome to episode 119 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Tuesday afternoon. It is April 30th, 2019. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. Bobby, the night is dark and full of spoilers. <laughs> it's going to be so hard. Let's let's just say nothing. Obviously, our frivolity segment will be Game of Thrones recap. And that's all we'll say about that for now. I, I just want to say, j- just to preview our Game of Thrones recap, we have consciously not said a word to each other about Game of Thrones since Sunday night, not even in our 45 seconds of prep for this episode, um, so that our reactions to each other's reactions will be pure and organic. This will be only marginally different from our prep for the actual substantive national security <laughs> yeah, law yeah, topics. Yeah, but, maybe, but what usually happens is like you and I start talking before the podcast and like, oh, what is this? What are you doing? And it's like, no, no, save it for yeah. the show. This time we actually were cautious, like, don't even, you know, surprise me with your with your take. I would, oh, man, the pressure's on to have a good take now. I guess I've got 45 minutes or so to come up with well, something. So here's my spoiler alert. Alyssa Rosenberg already had my take, but okay, we'll that, get there. That doesn't clue it in for me, but I can't <laughs> wait to hear more. Um, what but, do we have um, to talk about? So we realm? actually, uh, as folks may have realized, we skipped last week. Yeah, uh, sorry about that. In case you haven't noticed, and it, judging by the attendance... You haven't. <laughs> well, that's true. Let's get those podcast listener numbers up, y'all. Now, uh, we, we got kind of swamped. This is your thing, right? It's like, I, you know, what is your goal? Is your goal like just more? Always yeah, more? Yeah, more. You like, I'm like the Night King. I'm just an inexorable force. I don't want more listeners. I can't, I can't say anything because I don't want to give any spoilers. True, I was going to say you're like Bobby Axelrod. Uh, who's that? Billy, the, the lead character in Billions. The, oh, see, the I don't show. watch Billions. Uh, I, uh, I know. Um, so How, what, what's why your, did we take what, last what, week off? Because right, what's your number? More. More? Oh, I like that. I can relate to that. Um, we took the week off because it's late in the semester and a lot of things at the end of the law school semester that you've been putting off can't be put off any further. Yeah, there's, there's sort of, there, there's there's no time. So so just like, you know, for CPAs, April 15th is the sort of, you know, yeah. all, all roads lead to April 15th. Um, May 6th for us, right? Because yeah. that's our last day of classes next Monday. And there's just... You know, there are deadlines and then there are deadlines. So I'm actually done. In law of the intelligence community, uh, uh, we had our second to last class today. We're in our final unit, which is a big, long case study on interrogation law. So we've got to kind of uh, wrap that up by by 1017 tomorrow. Ah, It's been pretty fun. Cool. Okay. Uh, So I'm almost done. So tomorrow, I've got two more classes for each FedCourts National Security, but my last class reaches a review session. So Uh, tomorrow's the last real class. In FedCourts tomorrow, we're talking about basically, we're looking back on the semester. Um, I assigned one of my favorite law review articles, which is Akil Amar's book review of the third edition of Hart and Wexler. Oh, that's cool. Was that in Michigan Law Review? Harvard. Yeah. Way back when. And it's just like, it's such a great like history of federal courts as a body of law. Yeah. And I want to get the students to sort of think about like the historical trends. Yeah, what's the arc of what they've... And then national security, we're doing uh, civil litigation um, against terrorists and their supporters. So the Anti-Terrorism Act and JASTA. JASTA. Yeah, it's been a while since we said that. I know. Now that we've said it, I'm sure it's going to generate some big decision this coming week. I mean, there's so much... I've alluded to this before. There is so much like activity going on right now in these lawsuits against especially these international banks... Um, with regard to that's, that's where the money is. Well, it is indeed, and so and and like the a lot of it with regard to sort of you know supporting Iran, um, and to what extent banks could theoretically be secondarily liable. Yep, sure. For helping Iran to secure financing for the terrorism activities it has supported. Well, uh, so all, I mean, yeah. we will, we will probably have the occasion to do a pretty deep dive on this pretty soon. 
right, as we as these cases start reaching the circuit level. Well, meanwhile, uh, while we were away, some report by some Mueller guy. Mueller. Mueller. Does that ring a bell for you? There's a neighborhood in Austin. Oh, Mueller Airport. That must be what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, you know, I, I think we share the view that the vast majority of listeners have already had a lot of exposure to Mueller Report topics. We're not planning to do any kind of deep engagement with that. But why don't we start in Trumplandia with uh, whatever we might want to say about Mueller, and then we can segue to uh, an area that's uh, maybe more fresh and, and perhaps we can add a little more value that's not being added elsewhere. We're talking about the subpoena litigation that's blowing up. But Indeed. let's do Mueller first. It is blowing up. So Mueller. Um, what, what, what's, what were your top takeaways? It's interesting. Most of my takeaways were about bar, um, mm-hmm. right? That is to say that, like, um, I was I – was, I wish I could say I was surprised by any of the sort of narrative, right? I mean, so obviously some of the specific details yeah. of specific episodes, like, oh, that's 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 not what I thought. But, but for the most part, it was like exactly as bad as we mostly thought it was. I mean, I mean, I, I I think I've been consistent all along. I hope I've been consistent all along. But I actually don't think the Trump administration was like actively conspiring intentionally with Russians to you know to yeah. to compromise the election. I do think that there were all of these awkward problematic contacts that they took, you know, painful, you know, that they were at pains to hide and to obfuscate. Um, And I do think that there are lots of things the president did behind the scenes to then interfere with the investigation into whether those contacts were illicit. So is it fair to say that obstruction always loomed as the most likely uh, criminal charge that could come out of this, more so than an actual conspiracy with the Russians? Yes. Which... Leads to something that I think Julian Sanchez said most notably very early on, which is it's a terrible mistake to talk constantly about how maybe there will ultimately be criminal charges on conspiracy with the Russians, because that may well not be the case. Yep. It may be more of a useful idiot situation, yep. but it also detracts from attention to the thing that was much more plausible to claim, which right. is that there's probably obstruction here. And the report maps that out, and the reaction to the report, and the ability of the president and his supporters to be able to say, "Hey, no conspiracy charge, uh, you know, supported here." Totally exonerated. Total exoneration. Um, and I'm afraid the public has really gone so far down, just focusing on the Russian conspiracy path, yeah. to where it was a ready, uh, a ready atmosphere for that argument to take root. That's fine, but I just, I mean, I, 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 I do not. Ex- so I understand that there are folks who have not read the report and who are deferring to whoever their trusted sources are and basing their analysis on that. I don't know how a rational person could read the entire Mueller report and think that the way it's being spun by the president and his supporters and the way, frankly, it was spun by the attorney general right. is an accurate summary of what the report says. So this, so let's focus on where that really comes home to roost, and that's on the obstruction yes. section. So with conspiracy, and I'm not, I'm choosing the word conspiracy yes. because yes. that's the crime. Collusion's yes. not the name of the crime. Conspiracy's the name of the crime. Um, it is relatively good news for the president, yeah. but but the section on obstruction and for us, I'm happy that I'm happy to know that the president did not actively conspire with the Russians. Exactly, right? no, that's 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 a good thing. Yes, um, on obstruction, it, it's not an exoneration at all. He he pointedly emphasizes Mueller being the he. Yes, yes, exactly. Mueller pointedly emphasizes the institutional context is the DOJ position. You can't indict the sitting president. That has ramifications about just how far you go down the pathway towards something you can't actually do. It says, we are are not saying here what we said for conspiracy. That is, we are not saying there's insufficient evidence to charge. We're not saying there is. We ain't saying there isn't either. He sets at sets it out on the table and leaves it there for what will happen or not happen with the next administration when President Trump is citizen Trump. Or Congress. 
Or, or co- obviously Congress I mean, I mean, as well. I mean, yeah, I mean, no, but I mean on the criminal charge. No, I know, but on the criminal charge. I know, but it's important to note that that you know um, articles of impeachment against Nixon and the article sure. on which Clinton was impeached was obstruction. All right, let, but let's take impeachment and set that aside yeah, okay. and stay focused on the criminal yeah, charges. No, no. It, this isn't over. But then, to your point about the Attorney General and the way he's handling himself, right. uh, or the way he's uh, handling this information, he tries to spike that preemptively by saying, "Well, okay, so good. That's that's exoneration too. Right. That's the, really and, something." And here's the conflation. The, the principal conflation that's happening in every single sort of piece that's sort of gotten my dander up is um, saying, as with collusion, again, not a crime, um, Mueller found insufficient evidence of obstruction. That is a factually inaccurate summary of the report. Um, not only did the report document 10 episodes where there was actual concrete evidence of obstruction, um, but the report, as you say, lays out all the reasons why it did not reach a legal conclusion and did not recommend prosecution without ever coming within a country mile of saying there wasn't sufficient evidence of obstruction. My takeaway was there is a charge waiting to be laid yep. when he's not in office anymore, yep. and it's all on the table. Now, impeachment could happen. Yep. We'll talk about that separately. Um, and the only obstacle to that charge happening would be this interesting question of, is there any really good argument that you can't have equitable tolling on the uh, statute of limitations here, which, if, especially if Trump gets a second term, you, if he gets that, you'll yeah. certainly need it. I think it's clear that there has to be equitable tolling in a circumstance in which a charge literally cannot be brought by force of law for a temporary status-based reason. That's usually the case, but, you know, I think the Supreme Court historically across multiple parties has been relatively protective of, of the president's prerogatives after he leaves office. So I don't, I, I can't, I don't feel confident about how that will come, it, come the out. Pro- so take, if it were otherwise, yeah. then the, the president could commit any crime in the book that doesn't have a special beyond yep. five to eight years thing. Yeah. could do it on day one of his presidency and just be above re-elected. the law as long as politically he couldn't be impeached. That can't be well, the right as answer. He, as, as long as he gets reelected. Well, right. Exactly. Um, so that can't be the answer. We're talking about equity. So it is True. up for grabs with yep. what makes sense, what yep. makes what makes right. And it can't be that it's right that right. the president can just uh, walk away from this charge by dint of being reelected one time. So I want to say, I want to say just two more things about the Mueller report itself. And then, and then I think we probably should move on because otherwise we could be here all, all yep. year. Um, so thing one about the Mueller report that I think is also worth stressing um, there is still the counterintelligence piece of this investigation that for for both obvious and less obvious reasons, the report that we've seen, you know, doesn't remotely get into. That's right. Um, and it is quite possible that there's counterintelligence stuff that is even more damaging to the Trump administration from the perspective of refusing to act to protect national security, mm-hmm. right? I mean, and if you look at sort of the way the administration is publicly situated on 2020 election security, it's not hard to imagine um, that even in the context of clear counterintelligence findings about Russian capabilities and Russian actions, you know, the first the Trump campaign and later the Trump administration was like, whatever, not a problem. Um, that's, that's, you know, in a, in a, that should be deeply problematic. We just, we have no frame for discussing it because it's all classified. Fair. I think I think that all sounds right to me. I'll just say, as to looking ahead to 2020, on one hand, there's a clear lack, obvious lack of White House leadership on election security vis-a-vis the Russians or anyone else. Yeah. Um, I would not say that's true at Cyber Command and NSA I agree. I agree. And, and amongst the amongst 
the key national security agencies that care very much and are very focused well, on this. Well, so with what exception? Do you, I mean, I mean, so there was a story in the New York Times last week, which I'm sure was planted by Kirsten Nelson, right, about, um, yeah. about how when she was secretary, her efforts to get DHS to, you know, ramp up and pursue sort of, you know, countermeasures for 2020 election stuff was sort of poo-pooed by the White House. I, I read that more as she needed the White House to engage in, in the larger effort to marshal the full power of the White House to push the country, because so much of this is going to require pressure on the states, yep. which have control over this. Right, and the White I House think just, if, you, if you follow it down, just with the intra-DHS yeah. situation, I think is fine insofar as whatever it is that the uh, Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, yep. whatever limited role it has under Chris Krebs, I'm completely confident is yep. being pursued as aggressively as it can be. It's it's that the White House is is utterly unwilling to pressure, you know, say the the Georgia Secretary of State, to, which is ridiculous. I mean, like, no, I mean, no, I mean, <laughs> it's totally I mean, ridiculous. I mean, the White House should be able, even in a scenario where the White House thinks the Mueller report exonerates the president, which it doesn't, right? The White House should be able to say, um, but we recognize. The threat to our democratic process, sure, right, and our and as opposed, right, it's like they're incapable of doing anything that is in the clear national security policy interest of the United States if it even looks like it is somehow inconsistent yeah. with the president's preferred political narrative. All, all the important national security work of this kind has to be done sort of below his visibility radar, which is to say you can't make bad headlines on Fox and Friends. And hence, Kirsten Nielsen. Um, so one other thing about the report, and then one little side note, and then we should move on to the subpoena fight. Um, uh, Julie, I think it was either Julian or somebody else who pointed out on Twitter one other thing. You know, for all of the sort of, you know, good job Mueller like you did, you know, um, the report makes out a pretty compelling case that Junior um, committed indictable offenses, um, especially vis-a-vis -vis obstruction. And he's not the president. And yet Mueller refused to pull the trigger on indicting Junior, which I think, you know, may have been a political calculation that, like, you know, as opposed to Mike Flynn or Paul Manafort no, or yeah, Michael Cohen. Yeah, touching the family is going to cause right, a that reaction. That Junior was going to be a Rubicon. But, you know— I actually the the one part of the report where I really get sort of upset with Mueller is not pulling the is is not you know not pulling the cord not 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 sort of not not taking the step on Junior when the evidence that recounted in the report was more than sufficient not just I think to obtain an indictment but almost certainly to obtain a conviction. Well, this is worth saying something we hadn't said earlier, which is that I agree with the parade of former uh, U.S. attorneys and AUSA's who have said. Hey, if the, the, what's been described here with respect to the president's obstruction of justice would be more than enough to charge with an ordinary defendant. It's just that it's not like an junior. Well, right. No, but so clearly, like, I don't have any uh, strong view on whether and to what extent Junior in particular is indictable based on what was in there. I, did, I didn't look closely for that issue. Um, to the extent that it was a close call, I'm not terribly surprised that Mueller might have thought to get the maximum good for the country out of this overall process, if he's not actually going to strike at the king— this would be an indicting junior might be an example of striking at the king in an ineffectual way. Might as well just go whole hog. Except that, except that the narrative's different. I mean, I, you know, the it would be a lot harder to have the sort of. I mean, like I, I don't think the narrative is no collusion, no obstruction, right? If the result was, a, I mean, I just yeah, yeah, that would it would help. You're right. I, yeah. I, I'd like to think I would want to look closer to see if I really agree with you that uh, it's yeah. like so right, clear. But, so, I, did, I did see a headline earlier that said that Schiff is thinking about making a criminal referral about Junior. No, I'm sorry about Eric Prince. I get these guys confused. Sometimes. Yeah, well, <laughs> it's it's so many characters. Well, yeah, I mean, the report also goes soft on Prince, but that's a separate issue. Yeah. Um, so then the last point I want to make. And this is sort of a tangential point. Speaking of obstruction, so I don't know if you saw this case, this indictment last week. Um, the U.S. attorney in Boston um, indicted a Massachusetts state court judge 
um, and her courtroom deputy for obstruction of justice. Um, basically, the the allegations in the indictment are that um, there was a criminal, there was a defendant who was in the judge's courtroom on an extradition warrant, um, and there was some question as to whether he was actually the person, you know, named in the extradition warrant, right? Uh, a state state extradition. Sorry. Okay. A, a, a sort of, oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. Right, cross uh, state lines. Cross New Hampshire state. wants a Massachusetts resident. Right. We call that extradition. It's not yeah, what yeah. we think of right. as extradition. Yeah. Um, and she had some concern about whether this was the right guy. Um, but ICE, right, Immigration Customs Enforcement. Um, had a detainer out on this guy. Um, and so ICE shows up in the state court, um, and sa- there's an officer there who says, you know, I have a detainer, I'm taking him into custody as soon as you're done with him. And so the judge tells the ICE guy to wait out in the hallway. And then lets him out the back door? Literally. Um, like, and and there's, a, there's, a, there's a portion of the court transcript where it's like, can we go off the record? Um, right. And wow. then it's like, and then miraculously somehow the court, the judge's deputy, um, lets the guy out the back door of the courthouse. So what's the right answer there? You don't have any legal obligation to affirmatively assist with the detainer, do you? Um, affirmatively assist? No. Okay. Actively thwart? So, so right. I mean, so, so I have, I have many reactions <laughs> to this indictment. Um, I think it is a, if the allegations of the indictment are true, right, if they're proven beyond a reasonable doubt, I think it is a violation of the federal obstruction of justice statute. Um, I think there is a big difference between the judge saying, I'm not going to lift a finger to help you, and the judge saying, hey, go away over there. I'm well, sending this guy over there. An important question, because I, I don't know yeah. this area. Uh, obstruction of justice, I certainly understand it encompasses criminal investigation. Yeah. But a detainer? Official proceedings. Oh, any official proceedings. All right. Okay. Um, so so you have a prima facie case. You have sort now, of enough overt action right. to thwart so, it to make it not just, I'm not helping you. But my point is, right, the, what, what, I, what, I, what I find striking about this indictment is two things. One, this is exactly how capaciously DOJ usually interprets the obstruction statute, right? And so the contrast between that and people reading the Mueller report and somehow saying, no obstruction is insane. Two, my concern about this case is not that it's not a prima facie case for obstruction, it's that it's politically motivated, right? Like, you know, would a U.S. attorney in a different administration have gone after a Massachusetts state court? Ju- I mean, I just— Oh, I, I think that sounds a little speculative to me. I can imagine I know, but that there's it would so, happen. I, I, I mean, know, but there's so much, like, red state, blue state toxicity right now that the president— I, 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 It's hard to give this administration the benefit of the doubt when you see a, when you see a blue state court judge— we, we had this issue in California, right, where the where the where Sessions basically yelled at the Chief Justice of California for saying, you know, as a general rule, we prefer that immigration officers wait outside our courthouse, not inside our courthouse. I think to pin it to pin it on political currying favor, the administration is. I think it impugns too much the motivation without further evidence. I think that if it's as you say that clearly on its face the statute applies here, that the judge really dramatically went out of her way, and the deputy did as well, to thwart the uh, the ICE enforcement action, which was an official proceeding. If on its face this is a legitimate charge, which, by the way, let me say, I think it's it's a little crazy to to actually take this step. This seems to call for discretion. Well, that's that's my problem. But but and so I question the exercise of discretion to bring the charge, primarily on federalism grounds and comedy grounds. Even even if this was thwarting, this seems uh, a dangerous door to unlock. Um, but I wouldn't I wouldn't jump into the uh, further step of saying that uh, they're they're doing this because because Trump's going to love it. Uh, maybe, but I'd need more. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not saying because of scale of it, but there's like there's a mood out there, right, about like sanctuary cities. Yeah. But I think there's a for a lot of people. I mean, it's very tempting to look at it as you know, this is all just politics because politics are so driven by it. But part of the reason why it's so driven by it is there are a lot of people who really feel strongly about the impropriety of sanctuary city type approaches, um, and that's that could be their policy basis for taking a dramatic step like this. Legal impropriety or moral impropriety or like political imp- I mean, policy? Like that, I was gonna say because no, every court all to I'm, consider all the, I'm okay. saying. All I'm saying is that we shouldn't assume that this wasn't a completely policy driven thing, even if it happens to go with the grain of what's politically uh, attractive to the White House. Okay, but if that's so, then then it sets up this interesting phenomenon where, you know, now watch out for more of these, you know, U.S. attorneys in sanctuary jurisdictions. Oh, absolutely. We should um, be looking out for that. You know, using the full powers of their office. Well, and after the president delivers all, what was it he said he's going to do? He's going to deliver all the removable people to the sanctuary cities, which confuses me. Like, how's that work? You're well, the other problem is, I mean, like, uh, this, this sort of betrays just how stupid this entire conversation is because <laughs> crime rates among the people he's talking about are actually lower than society yeah. at large, and especially in the cities he the wants key, to send The key phrase here is we've gotten dragged in by the larger politics into a dumb conversation about this sanctuary city stuff. Let's let's it's pivot back to this uh, question that we flirted with a moment ago, this impeachment question, yeah. going back to Mueller. Uh, so I'm of the view that uh, you know, we've talked on this show a lot over the past 119 episodes. So <laughs> 200 I don't remember. 250 hours total or something. And there's got to be at least a few times in there where I can be heard saying, like, yeah, he should be impeached. He's, he's unworthy of the office. It's, it's overdetermined by character, morals, and policy and all sorts of things. There, there is an interesting actual legal question there about, like, can't, do you get to decide things based on non-criminal charge-like grounds? Setting all that aside. Um, impeachment seems like the, the stupidest thing possible at this point because there's no way under current conditions the Senate would convict, and I think it would boost Trump's chances of re-election quite substantially were they to go for impeachment. I really do think that. And I said this to a friend the other day, and he said, well, uh, but how else, do you, how else do you put down the marker that this is wrong? And I thought, through a, through a vote of censure, a formal vote of censure. And I was going to write up something about this, and I realized a lot of people have actually said this already, not surprisingly, but I'm curious what you think. I think that a vote of censure would be quite appropriate in the House. It's their prerogative to do it if they have a majority for it. It could take all the positions on policy and morals and otherwise that, you would, that you'd be trying to vindicate with impeachment. It would give you the same result, but without a, the sort of the political goose that would actually help Trump uh, in the election process, and without then turning the whole thing over to the Senate, where it would kind of, kind of get muddied and turned into something else. I think, like a lot of people who have politics like mine, I'm very torn at the moment about the impeachment question. Um, I certainly agree that there's no way to get to anywhere within, you know, I already said a country mile, a light year of 67 votes in the Senate, mm-hmm. based on what's true today. But I also know that... When the House began impeachment investigations into Richard Nixon, there was a similar um, firewall, right, of Republican support in the Senate. Um, And there were similar sort of prognostications that it was pointless for the House to really take that seriously because it never had a chance in the Senate. And what changed was that not as a direct result, but as sort of an indirect result of it wasn't a direct result of the impeachment investigation. It was a direct result of the Watergate committee's work. Um, was the disclosure of the smoking gun tape, um, right? And that only came about because of the ratcheted up pressure, right, incident to the commencement of the impeachment proceedings. 
This suggests to me if if what you're describing is a dynamic that could still play, and by the way, I don't think it could because I think party discipline and primary pressures and all the rest are just wildly yep. different from the early 70s. Yeah. I, think, I think it's just a different world. Um, but that suggests that now's not the time because that sort of – I agree. We're not there. there yet. And impeachment's not what would drive that – drop draw that out. It would be regular congressional investigations and, and like like the the, the IRS uh, records of Trump's tax right. returns. So, so, so I want to get to that in a second. But I will just say one more thing. I, I, your point about the politics I think is really important. I, I was trying to describe this the other day to a friend – and this might be unfair, but I'm going to say it anyway because what the hell? Because yeah. um, whoever that is, they're not here to defend themselves. No, no, no. I, no, no they, they agreed with it. I just, oh, I okay. just, I just worry that like this is going to get me into trouble. Um, although I don't. Yeah. So this may be an overgeneralization, but my sense of the politics of the Nixon era was that there were a lot of Republicans who supported the president up until near the end. Not because they uh, – who supported because they believed him, right? That is to say because they didn't – they thought the Democrats were out to get him. They thought he was actually generally an honest person. They didn't actually think he was guilty of the things he was accused of. Right, and they were shocked when it and, – And so when the smoking gun tape came out, whether you were really shocked or just pretending to be shocked, right, yeah. that necessarily um, eviscerated the the ground on which you had previously been supporting Nixon. And the problem from me, I as an outside observer of Trump supporters think that the difference between Trump's support and Nixon's support is that many and maybe a sufficient percentage of Trump supporters know that he's a pathological liar and that he's a narcissist and that he probably has done all of this shady stuff. And they just don't care. In fact, they may even like him more because of it. And so, so whereas the smoking gun tape was incredibly damaging to Nixon's reputation with his base, it's not clear to me that any of the things the Democrats think they might find are actually going di- like, to like It's like a, a Tholian web in Star Trek. Like the more power the Democrats shoot at Trump, the more serious the concerns are, the more it's going to reinforce his base's persecution complex. It's a, I'll give you an X-Men Sebastian Shaw kind of thing. So, uh, right. I think ba- I, I'm not so sure about the part where, like, actually it's entirely a plus. He has all these bad qualities. What I tend to hear much more often is, look, I know he's got these bad qualities, but I'm going to pinch and hold my nose because this is the firewall against uh, things that I perceive as horrifically bad in the policy front. So I'm going to take the policy good at the cost of these things that I'm embarrassed by. But to your point – Exposing, like coming up with further proof of yeah. the mendacity or the corruption, is not actually going to surprise That's many the thing, people. Right? Yeah. Like, I mean, so so his tax returns come out, and 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 what we find is that you know he was incredibly deceptively clever about avoiding federal income tax for all this time. I mean, yeah. you know, it's not going to move the needle, right? I mean, maybe it comes out that he has like all these you know Russian investments, right? Or right. like he owes right. money and, to Russian right. banks, and that he lied during the campaign, lied in the context of relations. But we to, we know right. he lies all like right. You know, right. No, all right, we're we're in agreement. We should right. go on to the subpoena okay. issue. So 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 all that said, I actually think as a result, the president is in the middle of a massive miscalculation um, when it comes to the subpoena issue. Okay. So we have now seen. So the president said last week, um, we're fighting all the subpoenas, um, right. which I think was a mistake in the first place. Um, and I wrote a piece for the Washington Post. Um, on Friday, it was in the somehow it made it into the print edition on Sunday. It's a weird nice. flag. Yeah. Um, you can tell who who reads the online version, who reads the print edition. Right. Um, that basically said, you know, what is different about how the president is framing this um, from 
prior, I mean, because we've always had, for as long as we've had congressional subpoenas to the executive branch, we've had fights. Of course. Over, you know, the sort yeah. of, and right? There should be fights. And there should be fights. This is Madison, right? Ambition must be made to counteract ambition. Um, but the fights have been on case-specific terms, right? So is this subpoena overbroad? Is there an executive privilege claim against that subpoena? Right. They've always been like one-off, right. as I said in the piece, retail fights. No one's ever made a maximalist departmental claim that, look, I, you're, that branch just can't touch my branch. Right. We're just independent, and you can't do a right. thing about me. And it's pretty. And, and, and indeed, there's a hundred and some. Well, there's ninety. I can't do math. Ninety-three, ninety-two years of Supreme Court precedent to the contrary, saying that Congress has the power of inquiry, and that part of the power of inquiry, of right, course. is the power. Okay. Um, this is why I think when push comes to shove, direct subpoenas to the executive branch are going to actually end up getting resolved on a case-by-case basis, where Congress is going to win absent some case-specific showing from the president. But what's new in the last couple of days is Congress, because they're not stupid, has not just subpoenaed executive branch officials. A bunch of the subpoenas have gone to private banks and other institutions um, that don't have executive privilege and that may in fact want to comply with the third subpoenas. party record holders. Thir- third party record holders. Hey now. <laughs> there's a there's a concept we'll return to in a minute. Um and so the president, what, last night filed his the second lawsuit we've the now seen? Deutsche Bank. Deutsche Bank. Um last week it was the one against Elijah Cummings and Mazars. Um right, where the president, um, in his personal capacity, because these are not about his official right. records in it's any his respect. Business and it's his business records. stuff. Um is attempting to um obtain injunctions barring these third-party recipients of congressional subpoenas from complying with the subpoenas. Um, Folks on Twitter, because everyone's a legal expert on Twitter, um, have been reacting that this is frivolous, it's preposterous, these are political questions, what the hell is he doing, this is insane. And what I want to suggest is, um, almost. (laughs) Um, So um, there is... um, a long, well, not say long line, a four-decade-old line of cases that actually recognizes that there are circumstances in which um, a, an individual, someone who is not the recipient of a congressional subpoena, should nevertheless be allowed to object to the subpoena. Well, sure. They may have a privilege claim. They may have a privilege claim. They may have a privacy claim. They may have a constitutional claim. If somehow the disclosure of the records to the government would implicate, say, the Fourth or the Fifth Amendments. Um, uh-huh. Yeah, third-party record issues, but nonetheless, there are. Listen, those claims may or may not be meritorious, but it's yeah. not hard to see how they could be there. No, in fact, in, in clearly a, a party whose information's in the hands of a third party when there's a subpoena. This comes up all the time yes. in civil litigation, yes. in criminal litigation. Um, there's nothing inherently wrong with trying to prevent third-party disclosure. We have well-trod pathways for working out when, if ever, those arguments should actually work. Right now, two two quick problems. One, you can't sue Congress itself. Um, right, so the lawsuit last week that was a, that was really against Mazars, it was styled as being like this big lawsuit against Elijah Cummings himself. Yeah, no, the speech or debate clause of Article One, Section Six, sure. is not going to let that happen. No. Um, two, what this all really boils down to is, unless there really is a viable privilege claim, what the real objection is, and this comes through if you read the complaint against Deutsche Bank, what the real objection is, is actually a repackaged version of the wholesale objection, right, of the I am not subject to subpoenas. Um, because what the what the complaint is basically alleging is that Congress is not engaged in a, quote, legitimate legislative yeah. purpose. It's an ultra vires claim. Right. Um, and the problem I have with that argument, Bobby, is um, 
investigating the president of the United States is not only a legitimate legislative purpose, it is, I'm, I'm hard-pressed to think of more significant oversight functions of the legislative branch than oversight of the president. So I, I, I agree with everything you're saying. Let me add a few thoughts. One is that uh, certainly in principle, the idea that a, a president may one day face a situation or could, in theory, face a situation where there's vexatious uh, attempts to embarrass or create political hay against the president through congressional record requests. Sure, absolutely. And and so the courts should weigh in when such claims are made. And I have every confidence And we that, agree that these claims are justiciable. Yeah, they're, oh, absolutely. And, and the courts will, in the ordinary course of things, almost certainly reject the, I think we agree, the baloney characterization that all this is just sort of a political witch hunt. Um, two things follow from that. One is... At a certain level, I think probably the dominant level, of course, that at least some people within the White House structure know this. This is about still more preparation to the narrative battlefield because now that the worm has turned at some point, A, there's a chance this stuff will come out. And if nothing else, you got to at least try to lay the groundwork of belief in the minds of the base that this is all a witch hunt, just like they did with the Mueller report, so they can get a similarly receptive base. B, Maybe they're going to lose in the end, and I know this is something you're going to want to talk about more. Um, but it's going to take a while to get there. So I want to get to the top. So, so I, I, I let, want, let me. Just, uh, oh, I'm sorry. Please. Yeah, no, no. The, and then just the last thing. Uh, actually, let's stay on that point. That's that's the most important thing. So let's go to that. So because I want to come back to what they're. I want to come back to what we think they're. they're why they're so scared? Because I think that's that's yeah. another question for me. But on the timing point. So this is my real concern. Like I think these claims are non-frivolous and non-meritorious. Um, the, the colorables, sure. the word I right. use on Twitter. Yeah, they should lose, right. but you shouldn't be sanctioned for filing them, which helps explain how is it the DOJ professionals are associated with this. Although it's actually mostly not DOJ, um, right? But yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah, good point, good point. Right, it's mostly yeah. these private lawyers. Right. But anyway, which, so all this which, yeah. is to say, um, here's the problem. Um, in a world in which courts are especially um, solicitous of the president when it comes to procedural doctrines, which has been the norm, right, going back – all the way to when this started becoming an issue in the Nixon administration. I mean, there are there are these special like appellate jurisdiction doctrines for when it's the president. Um, I am worried about courts basically s- not slow walking these cases, but not hustling. Right. So we got to tread carefully and get long briefing periods and really and let it all marinate right. for a while. Um, and and so because all you need is a you know a preliminary injunction from a district judge or a stay of a denial of a preliminary injunction by a court of appeals, or a stay by five Supreme Court justices. Now, I say all you need. I mean, that's not nothing. And one of the factors for a preliminary injunction is likelihood of success on the merits. And I think that factor is going to weigh pretty heavily Heavily against against Trump here. Agree. But the equities are going to weigh in his favor, right? I mean, that is to say, if, if, if the real claim is that this is information that ought not to be public, that would damage, that would cause irrevocable damage... To, um, you mean like if we accept his characterization is true, would it be best? To the equities actually might, yeah. you know, because the irrevocability once the information's out, you can't. Yeah, protect. I could see a court now. Now, mind you, a court in the, to my mind that would be reason to be deferential but fast. Yes, exactly. Right? Like if that's true, then let's get to the bottom of this right. quickly. Like yes, I'll preserve the status. I will give you your injunction for now, yeah. right? But briefings on the following accelerated right. schedule. But here's the problem, right? The question is, will every judge along the way hew to the both prongs of that, De- you know, right? Like right, deference yeah. but speed. Because when both parties want the case to go fast, it'll go fast. 
But when one party really wants, especially the party who loses. Yeah, if you're making them rush, you're running the risk of reversal on. No, on, but I'm thinking of something else, right? Imagine that. Imagine a judge says, you know, I think, you know, I, I really don't think you have a high likelihood of success on the merits, but, I'm, you know, like, imagine if now it's up to Trump to decide how quickly to appeal an adverse right. ruling. Well, you, yeah, you wait to the last minute. And that's sure. my concern, right? extension even. I mean, because just to play this out. So without crazy expedition, the latest the Supreme Court could grant a cert petition in time to be argued and decided before the before next year's elections um, is January 2020, right? You've got 90 days from the last circuit decision, um, and if you're the, and if you're Trump and you want to slow walk this, right? Imagine yeah. you you know you lose but you got to stay, right? And so it's not hard to imagine a scenario where it's after October. And the case is still not fully decided by a court of appeals. Maybe there's a petition for rehearing on Bonk pending, right? And so my concern is that this is all just an exercise in in stalling. Right. And so it's it's overdetermined in which I love to say on this show. There's, there's a real chance of getting the strategic win he needs, which is just to delay whatever the disclosures are until after the election. Yep. Um, and B, even if you don't get that, you in the meantime are sending out this smoke signal to your base that, that oh, Congress is out. You know, like Mueller's done and they didn't get me and right. now that now they're trying this, it's all the same thing. Look at look over there. You don't need to see my tax returns. Look over there. So here's why I think this is a gross miscalculation. Right. Right. So, so all of that makes perfect sense to me, except and I think Greg Sargent made this point last week in a, in a piece for The Post. Um, the, yes, that is the message you're sending to your base. But the message you're sending to everybody else is I'm terrified about what Congress is about to find. Right. And that is a message that, if nothing else, Bobby, implicitly vindicates Congress's claim right, to the legitimacy of the investigation. Um, right, that that it certainly doesn't look like a fishing expedition for misconduct by the president when the president is literally pulling out every single stop to try to prevent any of this information from becoming public. Now, you can say it's a, you know no, he's protecting his prerogative. You know, he, just the the fact that he has nothing to hide doesn't mean he shouldn't try to hide it. Like, I mean, I understand that argument, but I think there's an optical risk. Right of digging in so hard that you're effectively saying, yeah, the only way you're really going to be able to get this stuff, Congress, is if you actually pull out every single one of your weapons. I think that uh, it's like we were saying earlier that most fair-minded observers understand that there's probably all sorts of shady business in these documents, and he has he has very good reason to try to keep them secret. Uh, shouldn't try to keep them secret, but no surprise he's going to. So I don't think that surprises or further persuades yeah. anyone. Um, but I think it's we've now got kind of a clock game going here. That's the thing we can watch. And 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 so you you know you said you said before we started recording today. You know we have talked in various contexts about our combined preference that federal judges in a lot of these contexts move faster. Yeah. Um, that we've seen this with the military commissions. We saw it with Doe versus Mattis. This strikes me as a context where a judge who is trying to be responsible to the public in addition to the parties, yeah. is going to do his or her best with the legal questions before them, but do so quickly. It's probably worth emphasizing, too, that while, of course, the main date for an election that we're using as sort of a deadline here is the, the actual presidential election, you know, there are primaries. Um, what? Yes, yes, indeed, primaries. Now, is it cartoonish to think that, you know, Bill Weld or somebody's going to knock off Trump in any of the state Republican primaries? I guess that kind of depends, as you were saying earlier, on just what's in those documents. Is it possible that something would be so cartoonishly bad? 
Uh, I'm a little skeptical because I think there's so much suspicion of, of Trump's shady dealings already built into the stock price. But there are these moments that will be occurring throughout the next year that definitely will arrive before decisions can be fully finalized. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I, I have this sense, and I don't, know if, I don't know if you share this, that we are in for a run of bad judicial rulings against the president, right? And it's going to be interesting to see how he reacts and how his supporters in Congress react and whether it yeah. further entrenches them. Right or uh, whether there's yeah. any whether whether any of it starts to create any kind of wedge like whether whether there um, whether there comes a point next summer if the polls are looking bad for the president where Mitch McConnell makes a strategic calculation and says we've got to keep the Senate the polls are not going to change for the Republican the likely primary yeah. Republican voters and general election yeah. Republican voters are not going to change on Trump based on any of this stuff yeah I think they're responsive to the economy yeah. and to larger smoke signals that are generated by by Fox and others um, and I think that's in turn driven by the economy so right now the economy is surging I think it puts him in a pretty strong position in that these things will matter hugely to us and to the kinds of people who listen to this show um, and it won't actually move the numbers much yeah I don't know I, I guess I I, rem- I mean this could be my naive optimism right but I I think a lot's gonna depend on who the Democratic nominee ends up being well that that's that's gonna matter more right, right. if there's a world of difference between whether you get like a you know a aggressive progressive nominee out of the Democratic Party or a sort of centrist, you know, um, establishment type? You can certainly probably predict my view on that. If the Democrats know what they're doing, it will be a centrist person who can... But does it have to be Biden? I'm not saying who it has to be, but I'm I'm happy to see someone else if, you know... Biden's had his bites of the apple, but I will I will tell you that the the best thing that could happen to Trump, in in my political estimation, is for a uh, Sanders type candidacy, Sanders or Warren, something that's going to scare the independent voters that are in the maybe independent is the wrong word, the centrist voters who are looking for something that right, who cha- might be willing who might be willing like yeah. the the Trump twenty twelve voters who might be willing to vote yeah. for a Democrat but not any Democrat. How about somebody like me who does does I will not vote for Trump? I'm, I think I've made that clear. <laughs> I will not vote for Trump. But there are a lot of people whose policy positions I'm not going to support either. Um, so it's it's a dilemma for people like me, and I get all the arguments. You know, we've all heard these arguments before. All right, I've so. got I got time to work on you. Yeah, yeah, sure. Why not? I, I, all this to say, um, we are headed for some major litigation showdowns on the subpoena questions. Um, I think the president's going to lose most of these cases, but it's not. You know, I, I think that's not self evident, and I think it's heading to the Supreme Court. And one last thing. This wouldn't be an issue if the president had done what every other president had done and divested from his businesses. Like part of the complexity well, here, right? Sure. Like, I mean, and, saying, and like, also doesn't constantly lie and doesn't. No, no, there's so but, many things. But it's almost like this is the exact kind of legal nightmare that arises from a president who is continuing to also oh, yeah. operate as a businessman. No, I would, I would really love to see what kind of reform legislation, sort of good government package of statutes could be gotten into place at some point in the future. Everyone's going to argue they're unconstitutional. I know, but there's got to be some things that can be done, and certainly some things need to be attempted. Listen, I I mean, no one who listens to this podcast on a regular basis is going to be surprised to hear me say, I think there's a lot of stuff Congress could do that it's been scared into thinking it lacks the constitutional authority to do. It's just that, like, people who are more your friends than mine are going to say, yeah, 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 but it's unconstitutional. Yeah, well, 
Speaking of things that are constitutional in stature, in Venezuela, as we speak, <laughs> how about that? In Venezuela, we have a contest for power that is, is going to the streets as we speak. And uh, I, although there's not a lot to say legally about this, it's potentially a huge day in Venezuela. And we need to remark that uh, um, uh, Guaido has a – Guaido, who, by the way, I can't remember if I said this before. He, every time I see him, I'm like, he looks like Beto O'Rourke. They both got the same kind of – uh, the same physical sort of mannerism and style of dress, and they, they remind me of each other uh, charismatically. Guaido had appeared for the first time with a significant uh, Venezuelan military contingent around him in Caracas, has called for people to take to the streets. It's really unclear at this point. That he's certainly framing this as the end game. It's not clear he can generate the momentum he needs to. But I want to emphasize something that's been driving me nuts in all the news coverage. I keep hearing about this. People keep referring to President Maduro and then to Guaido as if he's the guy that, as Maduro characterizes it, as if he's this guy trying to seize power. The United States and I think almost all of the Western Hemisphere and a lot of Europe all recognize Guaido as the legitimate uh, government, his his regime as the legitimate government, not Maduro's. We shouldn't talk about it as if Maduro somehow ever was properly put into office, let alone that he properly stayed there. <coughs> so that's unfolding today. So far as I've seen, no reference to any overt American role, if and when there's any kind of American military involvement. Obviously, we'll treat that as a, you know, that's probably emergency podcast worthy if that were to happen. Um, moving on from Venezuela, Steve, let's talk about this, uh, decision by, uh, this is the Northern district of California. Jewel. Carolyn Jewel versus NSA. This case has been around. I had forgotten this case was even still going. I know. The procedural history of this is too painful to possibly try to recount here. How about this? Way back, uh... In 2008, this suit was filed alleging uh, a variety of constitutional and statutory privacy-type violations based on allegations uh, of NSA content and metadata collection, all the sort of stuff that later on becomes sort of central to the Snowden revelation stories, right? So this case has been popping around forever. It's a would-be class action consisting of AT&T customers claiming that their content and metadata uh, must have been captured and sucked up in the TSP and the things that became Section 215 metadata and and uh, Section 702, that, that sort of thing. Uh, it's been up and down the Ninth Circuit, uh, pieces of it getting knocked out here and there. There was still a Wiretap Act and a Stored Communications Act set of claims. Now they're gone too, at least barring further action from the Ninth Circuit. Um, we've got a summary judgment ruling for the government that found that the uh, the would-be class representatives, and I guess you know by extension the class as a whole, there's insufficient evidence at the summary judgment stage to show their standing in the particular sense that they can't show that their communications in particular were captured. Now, they, they tried to make the most they could out of things that were leaked by Snowden, uh, a, a AT&T whistleblower whose description certainly documented that there was some NSA equipment doing something at an AT&T facility on Folsom Street in San Francisco. Um, and the judge kind of goes through it all piece by piece and all the plaintiff's expert testimony and all the rest and just on evidence law grounds knocks off this, knocks off that, basically saying, look, that's speculation. You're, you're making logical jumps. That's not firsthand knowledge. So hearsay and speculation arguments basically knock out everything. And then there's this further layer of state secrets privilege claims, which has been central to this litigation all along. The, the court is at great pains to point out that, that the court— Wait, what was that? <laughs> what was it? 
Um, that was awkward. That was me trying to put on the uh, the Spurs Ajax Champions League semifinal. Oh my gosh, that's awesome! Oh, hey, pour one out for the San Antonio Spurs. Well, indeed. they fought. They fought hard. I thought they had a chance there with that rally. But, the, but by uh, the way, I totally interrupted you and, and broke your lot. Broke your your, your broke strain, my but, flow. But we're we're in the third minute in London in uh, in Spurs Ajax in the Champions League semis. All right, go go Spurs. My only Spurs who are still in contention. Indeed. Um, All right, sorry. Back. No, to no. The, so, anyways. Um, the state secrets claim the judge was at great pains to emphasize. He said, look, I reviewed meticulously everything that the plaintiffs offered. Yes, but I also very carefully reviewed all the individual <laughs> nice taking pictures. You're determined to make it hard for me to do this. Uh-huh. Um, the judge said, I, I reviewed all this information, and I've become convinced that the, the def- there cannot be a defense mounted here without exposing the ins and outs of who gets covered and who doesn't and who's participating in this program and who doesn't. And the court says, look, at the end of the day, that's all I, I'm persuaded by the government's claim, which I should defer to to some extent anyways, but I'm persuaded by their claim that this will reveal information that's harmful to national security. And so at the end of the day, a combination of the evidentiary problems backed by the state secrets problems leads this case to finally die. So what do you think? Is that is that going to stick? Probably. Um, you know, it's the Ninth Circuit, so you can imagine panel variations that would have different reactions to the district court's opinion. There might just be fatigue at this point. I mean, this is very much of a piece with what the Fourth Circuit's eventually going to have to grapple with in the Wikimedia case, mm-hmm. where I actually think there's a stronger argument that the, you know, that there's that, that, that there's a strong argument that particular communications might have been intercepted, right? I, so, you know, I think it's speculative, but yeah. I agree that maybe I don't actually know that their argument's stronger, but I do know that uh, they filed in that case a notice of this decision to, to make sure it was known to that court. So we'll keep watching those places, but once again, it just kind of proves something you and I have seen that I think you lament more than I do, <laughs> which is that um, our civil litigation system is not very easy to use to police the legal boundaries of, of classified activity. Nope. That, and that, that descriptively is clearly true. True. All right. So speaking of that sort of thing, a couple of things relating to NSA collection authorities. First of all, the Wall Street Journal had a pretty big scoop uh, reporting that NSA, for its part, is not going to recommend the, to the White House uh, or to Congress, it's not going to put its push behind renewal of the USA Freedom Act authorities uh, for continuing to have the telephone companies be available to do sort of disaggregated contact chaining. Uh, to check who's calling who when you have a, a terrorism suspect. Um, that is perhaps not surprising since we've had this sort of string of leaks, including that that infamous episode with the congressional staffer saying as much, more or less, uh, out of school <laughs> when they were probably not authorized to do and clearly not authorized to do so uh, on a Lawfare podcast episode. Um, we don't yet have a we don't yet know where this is going to go the rest of the year. We don't know what the White House is going to do with it, but watch that space. This is yep. a really important topic. Yep. And every single time I talk about it, I'm going to say this because I think it's really important. It's it's all fu- perhaps fine to have the phone contact chaining program that's embedded in USA Freedom Act go away. Please don't lose sight of the, side of the fact that part of what sunsetting is not just that piece of it, but all the rest of what is done under 50 U.S. Code 18. Uh, 61 or section 215. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, there's right. I mean, what how this affects the reauthorization conversation, I think, is yet to be seen, right? Um, and I think it's gonna be interesting to see whether there are folks who try to say, therefore, we don't need to reauthorize any of it. Um, and yeah. that's where I think we're gonna need something that we don't have enough of in this field nuance. Nuance, it's well, because there's, in my opinion, a 
huge risk of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. If you think that the 215 phone program's bathwater, fine. But the, there's also at stake the change between 1998 and in 2001 in the Patriot Act right. um, that took what was a super narrow authority where all you could do was go to a certain subset of providers, of third-party businesses. You could go to a handful of industry sectors. And if you had uh, specific and articulable facts to show that the record you want pertains to that person being an agent of a foreign power, you could get those records, but you couldn't use it for any other industry. And it was pretty arbitrary and kind of reflective of a handful of industries that were big in some prominent 1990s counterterrorism cases. And you wanted to include those, but there's no real reason you wouldn't have other things in there, at least some other things. The 2001 change both widened it so that any third party would count and abandoned the requirement that the only eligible records would be those of an agent of a foreign power. And instead, it can be anyone's records as long as it's relevant to the investigation. So the spouse of your target, right. the, the co-worker, the, the partner who's not themselves the target but might be duped by the target into making some important transactions, you need to be able to reach that stuff too, I think. I think so, too, in the abstract. I do think it is a different conversation after Carpenter than it was before it, right? That, that you know, now that the Supreme Court has has taken a bite, I, I know this is, this yeah. is our metaphor, right? Yeah. But now the Supreme Court has taken a bite out of the third-party doctrine. I actually think that there's more room for constitutional considerations in this story than there might have been the last time. We so I'd this. flip that around and say, yeah. to the extent someone has anxieties about, but what might this, what might the government do yeah. with this? Um, well, you know, Carpenter demonstrates that the court is going to be there and is interested in engaging on massive digital compilations of things that are different in kind from what could have been gotten with third-party records in the past. And by the way, the court has made clear that uh, it is not taking the position that narrow targeted requests for production um, are, are going to be in some way constitutionally protected, whereas they weren't in the past. Anyways, I, I'd like to think there'll be some good government here, and they'll figure out how to throw the bathwater out to drain the bathtub without harming the baby, but we'll see. Indeed. Okay. Um, it's probably worth noting on, on this topic that ODNI has issued its annual statistical report on how these various authorities are used. Uh, Charlie Savage has a really great rundown in the New York Times. Uh, and the thing that jumped out to him is what jumped out to me as well, which is that uh, the number of unmasking requests, which the president has made a, a term a lot of people know about that didn't used to know about. These are requests by the recipient of an analytic report. The president report. and the former chairman of the House Intelligence Committee. Indeed, known as well. Uh, an unmasking request is when someone in government who's a proper customer of the intelligence community receives a report where the identity of a U.S. person who's, whose communication comes up uh, either through the content or as mentioned, they, they mask it as sort of a default. You start by not naming the person. But of course, a lot of times the identity of the person right. uh, is in fact relevant. So you, you, the customer then makes a request back to the originating agency, in this case, NSA, and says, hey, can you, can you unmask U.S. person one? We need to know who that is because it's, here's the following reason why. Right. He might be the national security advisor designee. Well, exactly. And so the, the that, was my, that was my favorite episode title of ours ever. Oh, uh, U.S. Person 1. Right. Uh, yeah. U.S. Person 1 U.S. Person 2 discuss. The, sh <laughs> the show notes for that yeah, yeah. also had yeah, lots yes. of good uh, yeah. masking in it. Um, yeah, the, you know, our show notes aren't as funny as they used to be. I, I don't know. we got to get into We should talk to the guy who writes the show notes. He's the worst. Um, so the number's gone up. And if you're curious, in 2017, 
there were apparently 9,529 unmasking requests. The numbers now for this past year, 16,721. I don't have any reason to think either one of those numbers is, is a good or a bad number, but it's just interesting given all the political hay that the president made out of this particular practice when, of course, surprise, surprise, all day, every day, real customers have real reasons to unmask. All right. Um, it's almost like the president didn't know what the hell he was talking about. Oh, I think he knew what he was talking about. All right. It's almost like the president was deliberately misleading his base about what he was talking about. There you go. Which reminds me, can I just say a quick word about his tweet right as we sat down? Yes, this is great. And then uh, John Dalton sent us the yes. heads up about this. Thank you, Hi, John. John. So uh, the president, um, in another vintage Trump tweet, uh, actually not right when we sat down, but like uh, a couple yeah. hours ago, um, said uh, he must have just gotten out of a briefing of some kind. This was your guess. I think that's right. We have 1,800 ISIS prisoners taken hostage in our final battles to destroy 100% of the caliphate in Syria. Decisions are now being made what to do as to what to do with these dangerous prisoners. European countries are not helping at all, even though this was very much done for their benefit. Wah. They're refusing to take back prisoners from their specific countries. Not good, exclamation point. So... I have a few things to say about you, this. This got your that's got your dander up. It's got my dander. What is dander, up? by the way? Um, well, I just think of dander. I don't know. I just I, the the phrase "get your dander up." I, I take to mean like you know gets you riled up. I, oh, definitely, that's what it means. I'm just wondering what the dander isn't is. dander the, the 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 specific isn't dandruff. Dander? I don't know. I know uh, some dear listener will let us know Indeed. the origins of the. Fr- I know. Th- I know we can Google that. We can yeah, Google yeah, yeah. Let me Google that for you. All right. No, no, no. Anyway, so um, dear Mr. President, because apparently you either weren't listening in your security briefing, or you were, and you just don't care about like honesty. Um, there are currently zero ISIS prisoners in U.S. custody in Syria, so far as we know. Um, in fact, they are all in the custody of. Uh, uh, coalition forces, Bobby, mostly the SDF. S- it's SDF detainees. Right. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I don't mind the royal we for our proxy uh, forces. Uh, that's There's a certain uh, level of practical honesty about that. All right, well, then let's talk about the word hostage. <laughs> that's the funniest part. That's, well, but this is the second time. He cracked did, me up you know, when I saw that. He did this. He pulled this last week. He referred oh, he did? to He referred so So he also had this preposterous tweet last week about the five Taliban detainees who were released from Guantanamo in exchange for Bo Bergdahl. Uh-huh. And he's like, they're now back on the battlefield fighting against us. Actually, no. The five Taliban detainees we released are in Qatar negotiating for a peace agreement on I behalf of the Taliban. I, I don't see an analogy to that at all. Cause I thought you were going to tell no, me but he, he used also, the word hostage. He did. Okay, well, that I would no, no, and well. He said, he said, like, the five hostages we were holding, the five terrorists, he misspelled terrorists, the five terrorist hostages at Guantanamo. So so he must, do you think he, uh, it, it, so there's a pattern of this. It sounds like he actually thinks the hostage has just kind of, it's just a synonym for prisoner. Okay. Well, let's That's crazy. Let's let's disabuse our listeners of this, right? Hostage is a term not only with a specific meaning that means you are being held against your will for the purpose of coercing someone else into action, but hostage taking is illegal as a matter of both domestic and international law. So I think I think this is just an illustration of him being dense about stuff. I think he's trying to use it as a synonym for detainee, but it cracks me up because of the reason you said you don't call our detainees hostages. Imagine if Obama um, had done that. Now I will say to your point though, uh, castigating the president for referring to the uh, the 
the Taliban leadership guys as having returned to the battlefield, insofar as he's making the narrow claim that like that they're fighting, obviously, obviously not. But I think it actually really matters that, of course, they're not. You know, these guys don't just go off and say like, "See, we really were innocent bystanders the whole time." These are, in fact, uh, Taliban leadership figures, and I think there's something to that. Um, to, that wait, that's wait, wait, what? What? I mean, what? Yeah. That they really were properly detained in the first instance is what I think turns on that. Okay, but like, I mean, but the the. the the purpose of the tweet was to like you know create like massive you know um, anger right over the fact that the that Obama had traded five guys who are currently involved in like yeah, fighting. Yeah, no, that's misleading if he's implying yes. that they were fighting. Now, all that said, so it's funny to scoff at his use of the word hostage, and I, I join you. I scoff. I scoff. But I'm embarrassed. I think, but I think. The larger point he's making here is quite right. Yes. I think that absolutely, <laughs> absolutely it is the case that Europe is not stepping up to handle these detainees, include many of their citizens, and they are not taking them back. In many cases, they've stripped them of citizenship. Um, we take so much flack over the past 18 years for our detainee policies. Um, taking steps like that, stripping citizenship, refusing to take back your own people, creates this outsourcing effect, and we end up carrying the, the consequences of that, having to ultimately take custody in some cases in the past. We may yet do so in the future. Um, I'm a little surprised that he didn't say, maybe it just didn't occur to him, that he didn't say they're going to force me to send some of these guys to Gitmo. I'm really surprised he didn't threaten that. You know, that. I wonder if there are actually people in the administration um, who have been really pushing back against against the sort of the Gitmo move, right? Because well, I'm sure all the DOD folks are like, please. Well, so so yeah. speaking of, can I just say a quick yeah. one about DOD? Um, so today is a special day. Uh, today is the 120th day that Patrick Shanahan has been the acting Secretary of Defense. And Bobby, if that sounds like a record, it's because it is. Hey, um, congratulations. But not only is it a record, um, the previous record for the longest tenure, the longest vacancy in the history of the Office of Secretary of Defense was 60 days. <laughs> and it was at the beginning of the George H.W. Bush administration because the Senate refused to um, confirm uh, President George H.W. Bush's first nominee. Right. So here we don't have a nominee at all. Right. Because the president says, I prefer the actings because I've got more leverage with them. By the way, I actually just scored. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. It's early, but that's awkward because it's an away goal. Away right. goal's away now, goal's bad. Now you mentioned as I was walking here, you said that uh, the uh, commander of Joint Task Force Gitmo, Rear Admiral John Ring, had you pointed out something I didn't know. He'd been relieved of duty by Indeed. Southcom, um, and I think we don't know the specific thing. I'm skimming an article as we speak to see if there's any. Uh, clarity regarding what the problem was. I'm pretty sure we don't actually have no a clear so, answer. What's so, your speculation? Then? Well, so my initial, I mean, you know, with with the Harvey Rishikoff's termination sort of ringing in my head, my initial wondering was whether he had wanted to do something like again that he, he whether he was pursuing initiatives that were insufficiently here's negative. A, here's toward. a Military Times article saying that he had been outspoken questioning whether his detainees were, were getting adequate, adequate medical. medical treatment. And this has been a big thing. I mean, Katie Bo Williams had a really important story last week. Carol Rosenberg has a story about this, about how, you know, the detainees are not going to get any younger. Um, and, that, you know, some of them have serious health concerns. Um, they are by, you know, they're supposedly entitled to equal medical treatment to military personnel, Bobby, but the difference is they can't be medevaced because they can't be moved into the U.S. So this has been a real sticking point. Um, you know, if the commander of the JTF is relieved of duty over a dispute over us not providing adequate medical care to the detainees, 
That is a big story. Now, you know, that's the speculation of the military time story. I haven't seen that confirmed. Yet. No. Well, okay. So I'm reading through this now. So he, I think it's fair to say his his article and his statements were in Defense One, and he was just making points about how, look, some of these guys are pre-diabetic. I'm not sure what we're going to do about that. He never comes right out and says, these guys, he does not say or never said, yeah. they're not getting adequate medical care. He's talking about the complexities of having to operate when you can't remove people to better medical facilities in the U.S., uh, and there is a formal DOD statement saying that's not why he's removed. Of course, it, you know, of course, it would say that. Um, hard to know. Hard to know. He was only supposed to be there into June, so the fact that they pulled the plug now, though, means he definitely made somebody quite unhappy. All right, um, let's do a real quick uh, NSD roundup since we've been gone for a couple of weeks. And there's been some interesting. Uh, do you want to save this for our next episode? Because we're already over an hour, and we still got to do Thrones. I'll just say this real quick. Okay, uh, quick. Uh, U.S. versus Domingo. Mark Domingo has been uh, arrested. This is a California former U.S. Army soldier. Uh, he had expressed support online for violent jihad. Uh, he got in into connectivity with a confidential informant, uh, he planned to set off a bomb at an event in Long Beach. So he's in custody now. He had bought a bunch of, a bag of three-inch nails for his bomb. Lovely. Uh, Maria Bettina, Russian spy. Her! 18-month sentence. She's already been in jail since last summer, so uh, she's going to go home presumably about eight months. Uh, Candace Claiborne, former State Department employee, has pled to a charge of conspiracy to defraud the U.S. based on spying for China. She'd she'd been in various overseas posts since 1999, and at some point the Chinese uh, turned her. Lots of cash, lots of stuff like sending one of her kids, uh, paying for tuition for her to attend a Chinese fashion school. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. Um, a Chinese national who had worked for GE uh, charged with se- stealing GE's trade secrets and passing them along to colleagues back in China. Uh, so you've got economic espionage claims there. Uh, a Wisconsin woman, Waheba, Waheba Dias, uh, charged with attempted material support to Islamic State. Uh, she'd been online, very active online, pledging allegiance to the Islamic State, encouraging others to cause attacks, uh, sharing infos on bombs. Uh, how to create bombs, and engaging in recruiting. So NSD continues to be busy across its major axes of operation, uh, the overall counter-espionage effort vis-a-vis China, and continuing uh, very effective counterterrorism prosecutions. All right, enough serious stuff. Is it time? It's time. My friends, if you don't want Game of Thrones coverage, if you don't want frivolity, if you don't want spoilers, we appreciate you listening. But but but, but go, you got, go now. You don't, you don't got to go home, but you got to get out of here because we are going to talk Game of Thrones. Steve. What do we say to the god of death? Not today. Not today. Not today. Um, so I liked it. I wasn't liking the episode at certain parts along the way. I thought they landed the plane very nicely. How do you feel? I thought the plane crashed. Oh, come on. Are you some kind of Arya hater? No. All right. No. Just checking. Come on. That was pretty great. I'm all for like empowering Arya. I'm all for heroin, like female heroines. I'm that's all. That's not why I liked it. I mean, that's no. great, but I liked it for its own. Merits. I'm all for Arya the badass. Um, there is so much about that episode that I thought ran into our fan, you know, fan fiction. You know, you, you mean the fact that like everybody dies except for the named characters? Right, nobody dies. <laughs> no. So, so seven. I mean, I know my Deathpool is is shot. My Deadpool's done. Um, so there are. I mean, I, I read the, uh, the the seven quote major unquote characters died. The majorest of which is Jorah. Yeah, right? I mean, like but Jorah. Jorah's, you know, so Jorah Theon. Right. But Beric dying's not that exciting. No, you know, Melisandre. 
Um, although her death, like the way, like I love that scene was amazing. Oh, I, I so, okay. So let me say a few Listen, things. Ed was a goner. Ed was. I mean, Ed, we all do. Ed was dud. We uh, all we all do. Theon was. I'm good. very surprised. Pod survived. Every, but dude, everyone. Yeah, no, but Pod, Pod was like they marked him for death by yeah. having him sing and yeah. kind of grow up on camera. We talked about it last week. I thought the cinematography if was dark. You, you know, well, I thought it was fabulous if you have a really high quality TV. Now, I I splurged on a TV a long long while back, and it handled it to the point where I didn't notice really that it was an issue. But so I heard, we have we have a per- perfectly fancy TV, and it did not it did not handle it well. Maybe I just. I needed to recalibrate you, my darkness. Maybe settings. if you have any other lights on, apparently. No, was, we were we were in pitch black. Yeah, but listen, I I don't want to I don't want to critique the cinematography of it because I think it's 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 meant to be disorienting and confusing. Yes, I want which go, is which is a little right. bit of a cheap way to. I understand, know, but I want to go straight for the bloody plot All because right. we have this show from the first damn scene of the pilot has set up the idea that for as complicated and intricate and devious and fascinating as the politics of the humans in Westeros right. are. That's the B game. That's the B game. The real war, the real That's what battle. said. The right? real war is in the north. Right. Yeah. Turns out the real war took about 20 minutes to wrap up. Now, the real war, yeah. So I, how much, the question this raises is, is this a divergence between the showrunners and uh, George R. R. Martin? That is, is the George R. R. Martin plot centrally focused on the supernatural encounter, whereas the HBO folks would really like to turn to the, frankly, more interesting as a, as a drama, uh, human interaction. So, you know, you say more, I mean, it's more so as a drama, but it's also like more, you know, it's less unusual, right? Like, I mean, you know, the the, the, the war against the dead, right, was like something unique about Game of Thrones yeah. versus like political. But, but to maneuver. make it really deeply interesting, you got to start showing your hand as to like, okay, so what exactly are they really trying to accomplish? What Where do they get their clothes? Right. Where do they get all their equipment? Right. What, so, so maybe, does he ever speak? I mean, maybe flashbacks to how the Night King right. became the so, Night King. So here's the thing. HBO is doing prequels, and the prequel is going to be all about that stuff. So I think HBO made a decision, you know what? Let's wrap this without exposing – let's not show too much of what's really going to happen yeah. here. And if we're not going to explain it all, let's make the Game of Thrones current series really all about the battle with Cersei. She's the real – Okay, but enemy. if that's true, then for seven and a half years they've been lying no, to No, no, because for, for, for all these years they're locked in on the George Martin plot until they gradually break free and then finally get towards the end here where they're free agents. So it didn't really matter that the wall fell down, right? It didn't really matter that there was an ice dragon. Well, it's drama. It helps set up – it helps – it helps solidify the uh, the craziness of Cersei not uh, turning her back on the rest of humanity. So it adds to her her legend. I mean, they had to do something because the story had been set up to that point. Anyways, that's what I think is going on. But I agree with you that it's it's really amazing that yeah. Okay, so now the night the 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 long cold winter night part is sort of dealt with. Let's all like, go down to the city king's flash. Like I mean, but but not just dealt with. Like you know, no one. I mean, you know what? Liana Mormont is the is the most important character who dies. Right? George is the most important well that fine died. but like i mean you see by like, the way i'm very, bad day for I'm the very sad. i really wanted leanna to, as i think a lot of people did really wanted her to make it glad she got to go down fighting that was pretty awesome yeah you have to but that was a, that was pretty good get getting the giant bad day for the mormons but i, I mean i just I, glorious day it just it, it was such a like you know um do you ever read the michael Crichton book the andromeda strain Oh, a long time ago. Barely remember. So The Andromeda Strain is a book that is, like, remarkably powerful for the first, like, 93, 94, 95%. Oh, like Lost. Right? 
Um, and then you get to the end, and the end is so, like, disappointing, deflating, not interesting. Yeah. Is it a deus ex machina, sort of like, here's this thing that happens, hey, it's all fixed. Most right, basically. Yeah. Same with, like, yeah. War of the Worlds, right? Yeah. Okay, so that's how you felt about this? So yes. I felt, I felt yes. like giving an hour and 22 minutes of intensive battle was uh, good enough when there's only three more episodes. you got to wrap it up quickly somehow or other. So I have no problem with how they did it there. I, right, but then, I, I do want to nitpick uh, the strategic geniuses well, so wait, that defended Winterfell the way they did. Well, wait, wait. Who? No one. Like, no one covered themselves in glory. I mean, the Night King? Like, yes, I have, you know, thou, ten, I, I have an unlimited supply of of, of manpower. And every time I kill one of your people, my, like, like it's, it's a two-for-one swing, like a yeah, dodgeball, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, but let me <laughs> let me not wait until I've secured the entire facility and every single person is dead to go get Bran, <laughs> who, by the way, is in a wheelchair and can't exa- isn't exactly mobile. Let me go in now before things are secured, right? Because what's the worst thing that could happen to me? It's not like there's an assassin out there who you know doesn't have a face who <laughs> can sneak through and, and who grew up here and knows all the nooks and crannies. Yeah, so I I don't begrudge too much. Look, they've. The the way they set it up, the only way that they don't sweep over the entire island and control of Westeros is if something sneaks up on him. He has to expose himself somehow. What once we learned, as we learned in the episode, that he can't be vanquished by fire. That was pretty awesome too. Yes. You it's, knew yes. you knew when they did that, it was like, Oh, they obviously are not gonna get him. He's gonna walk but that out. That was of too that. easy. Yeah. It's only fair. I mean, you know, Daenerys herself once walked right out of the fire too. True. Um so that that was all fine. And frankly, I don't I would have agreed with your objection there more if what they'd had was like, you know, because for a second there, they kind of had Theon sort of still alive after he'd been passed. They could have had Theon like jump to his feet and knife him in the back. And I would have thought, oh, that kind of sucks. Too much redemption arc. He had enough redemption arc. No, it has to be Arya. Uh, and I think when you look back at how many years they've yeah. been setting this up, I mean, the, to me, it was shocking what, to the realize. Aria, the Belisandra Arya thing. I mean, this isn't something they cooked up recently. No, this no. was the plan from, from day one. So for those you know who don't follow this stuff and haven't been digging into the nuances online, uh, you can easily come across the clip where she's still like really young, runs into the Red Woman. Red Woman looks into her face all this stuff about you're going to close the eyes, the blue eyes, the green eyes. The, yeah. you know, totally calls it. There's a scene where she's fighting with Brienne when she's little, where she does the the flip from one hand to the other with her with her uh, dagger. Yeah. It, a lot of needle this, needle. Uh, it's all sort Stick of foreshadowed. Yeah, exactly. So I actually thought I thought it was fantastic. I loved that. Listen, that that it was Arya and that she did it that way. Like I thought was great, right? Um, but like the number of blunders that you had to have to happen for you to get there, just you know. Yeah, I I think the blunders. I think it's worse when you flip it around and look at the ridiculousness of the defensive strategy, including putting all of these people in the crypt, right? Like well, the thing yeah. everybody saw coming. Well, Wait, how, you mean when he reanimates the dead? Okay, so how many of those? First of all, those are a lot of really dead bodies. Still bones, really? I guess yeah. maybe. But where do they get the? They can punch through concrete now. I mean, you know, maybe maybe the the Night King could do them with special power. Maybe yeah. maybe they were buried with with weapons. Well, I, I feel like they had to do it when you put them in the crypt. That was obviously the thing to do. Yes. Now I, I'm intrigued by this whole decision to let's start with a cavalry charge. Let's just expend the entire Dothraki horde. Well, yeah, because the brown c- people cinematography. 
that's a, that's, that's a terrible cheap shot. Uh, the cinematography of lighting their racks cool. the, and the then rocks, having yeah. it just yeah. visible in darkness. That was awesome. And it, I, it was worth it. I know that's why they did it because that was pretty powerful. I know. But the idea that anyone would think like, okay, we know what we're up against, but I don't know. The Dothraki are badasses. Let's see if maybe a cavalry charge would do it. They wouldn't do that. You would get every single person you can behind the walls, immediately light everything, right. and then hope that the dragons right. could just do what they right. then circle. did. Just, just circle, flaming right. everybody. Wait, but can I also ask a question, right? What, what were the Dothrakis supposed to do with their arrows before they were lit up? <laughs> they were just going to chop. Well, you know, you could chop skeleton arms off But dismembering them doesn't kill them. Yeah, that's a real problem. But you can make it hard for them to walk, and they are pretty far from the wall. Yeah. So there's your cavalry justification. Also, but like, once again, right? Bad use of strategic bombing. Well, how about the, I know, agree. They had air power. They had and air yeah, power. You're outnumbered two, uh, you, you're outnumbering them two to one. Yeah, they've got one yeah, you dragon. You air to air combat as opposed to, as opposed to you know, no, it's defensive, defensive use of your air power. I agree. Now, how about this? How about let's build the trench uh, less than a person's reach wide? Well, yeah. that. How about a bigger and deeper right. trench? It'll never occur to right. We're going to need a bigger boat. It would never yeah. occur to them to lay down a dead person across the. No, trench. they would never expend their dead bodies. Oh, they're already dead. They don't care. You, never mind that we just saw yeah. them do that in the battle at the stupid place in the north where they went to steal the guy who they didn't right, need right, to right. steal. Yeah. No. But so all this to say, so there's Your one favorite moment. So I was going to say, I, for as much as I really was unhappy with how it all went down. There were, I thought, some really beautiful and powerful moments, right? Um, the, the the Melisandre Davos exchanges, I thought, were really cool. Um, but the one the one that I really hope is is a signal of of a relationship that's going to I re- know what you're going to say. Reignite and um, Tyrion and Sansa. Oh, and so great! It, you know, facing death and and kind of and the know, nonverbal communication between the two which of is them. Great acting. Yeah. She's really become She's a great really actress. Good. Um, but I loved it when she said you were the best of them. That yeah. was great. Which you and, know, it's, it's and both like, funny. And he says, "What a frightful thought." <laughs> I love it too. I actually, they finally gave him a good line once again when he talked about how you know like the so the one. What do you say? Like this, the one institution or organization for which my talents are least well suited. Um, he he was quite good. I thought Sansa was great. I do like the idea. I I don't know that it might be a little bit much for them to sort of discover romance, but they should have a permanent like bond. Friends. Well, like just like just like something, something deeper than that, just like yeah. people who've been to death together and, and survived. I thought that was pretty fabulous. But, no, but also, it was like it was like we've been like you know, we've been through so much together. Yeah. Right. That like even if this is the end, like we're gonna go through it together. Okay. Now, how about how much did you like uh, Beric Dondarrion's resolution, where he does the full Hodor yeah. homage, where he blocks the, yeah. the doorway with his arms out, and it's both sort of crucifixion imagery because they had his arms straight yep. out cruciform. Yep. And he sacrificed himself, which I, you know, I, I kind of appreciate that. Which, but which, then they also kind of also echoes Hodor a little bit too. And right to protect a Stark. Yeah, like Hodor. Yeah, right. I mean, and 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 what and what becomes clear is right. Beric also has figured out right that Arya is a really important character. Right, right. And and, it's, and the the story doesn't tell us that until one scene later when when Melisandre and Arya and um uh, uh, and the, uh hound. the Hound right yeah. are in the. Yeah. Are in the, are no, in the, I, th- I thought that was great. I enjoyed greatly the uh, the sort of uh, they did a lot of different homages, right? So you had a lot of Helms Deep, but then you also have just some straight up classic zombie movie stuff, yes. right? Like the, Quiet- the Arya in the library. Yeah, yeah, Arya in the library. That's just you know sur- survival horror film type deal. That was pretty fun to watch. It it went on for a while, but it was pretty fun. 
And uh, for that to then sort of be her moment where she was most reverting back to being her childlike self. And then the red woman kind of restores her and she visibly changes. The acting's good. She goes from the scared child who, who is in this horror film to being reminded like, no, 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 you're a trained assassin right. and this is your moment. I have a role to play. And, and she's like, and she just, and her face just goes cold and she heads off to do it. I thought it was great. And I love it too that like Jon Snow, the big bad hero, like he's doing his best, but this isn't about him being the hero anymore. No, until he basically committed suicide. Well, he was done at that point. Yeah. Right. He. I mean, he. Let, let, let's just be clear. Like Jon Snow attempted suicide at the end of that episode. I don't interpret it that way. I think he he he, had, I mean, he, he has was going to do no he, way of knowing. But he wasn't trying to kill himself. He was just he's saying, screwed. "All right, I'm screwed. All right, let's go." What do you mean he's not trying to kill himself? As opposed to hiding behind the wall where he had been able to withstand the blue flames, he turns out and walks out to confront, is it Rhaegal? I, I, I feel like there's a connotation. I don't want to get into definitions yeah. of suicide, but I think there's a connotation there that I don't think maps onto the situation of tactical, tapti- tactical end of the line. He had to get past. He wasn't going to get there by staying put. So he said, all right, I'm going to stand up there. But he didn't attack him. What was he going to attack him with? Like he'd swing the sword at his put nose. Put it through like his, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think it's unfair to characterize that way. But it's neither here nor there. The point is, here he is. Like he's convinced he's, you know, I've got to get through. How am I going to get through? Yeah. Guess what? You can't. Right. I thought that was awesome. Yeah. You can't. You're not going to well, do that's it. that's like Battle of the Bastards where you get stuck until the Knights of the Veil vale come in. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. So it's good. I appreciate it. it you know, there's, there's been this turn towards Hollywood and fan service in this final season, the past couple of seasons. And I appreciate that they didn't have it be that, you know, the mighty Jon Snow once again writes to the rescue. Okay, but wait, wait, wait. I mean, but the fan service, I mean, okay, that's, that is a small, right, non-accommodation of fan service against an entire episode that, like, you know, renders irrelevant the dominant narrative of a seven and a half season television show in 20 minutes out of fan service. Uh, you mean by letting so many of the main characters live? I and, can, and, look, and, George, and by dispatching with the Night King in, in a flip of the, in a the flip Well, of the I've already said my piece I on know. that. And I will just say that I think that the George Martin phase that's controlled by the books is grimmer and it, and it reverses your expectations much more readily. It's become more Hollywood and so it's more satisfying to the broader audience. But not to me. But not to us. No, like it, certainly more of the major characters should not have survived that. Um, it was ridiculous to have almost no survivors, yet all the major name characters, with a few minor exceptions. Right. It's like it's like the whole army is dead, except for, and then we can name like the. They, they should have at least had <laughs> other no name characters also standing there with them. Yeah. You know, you didn't have to literally well, be like. Well, the, there's they, a Bob, mountain of Bobby, dead bodies, except for Brienne, Jamie, and Pod. Bobby, maybe they did, and we just couldn't see them because it was so dark. I could see fun on my TV. That's all I'm saying. Come watch it at my house. All right. Anyway, I'll just say, so So now we're going to have some political intrigue to deal with in the coming episodes. Yeah, it's going to be, to your point about the centrality of the White Walker story, it's like, it won't be, it'll be a little deflating to go fight the Golden Company, well, here's a, for whom we have no cares or feelings. Not only that, but like, um, you want to talk about air power, right? There is now a, um, I mean, this is like, this is like the Pacific campaign in 1944 and 45, the right, and air power. Yep. Right, I mean, yeah, you know. no. They're, so they'll have to contrive something, you know. Although it's not clear to me if Danny has one dragon or two. Yeah, exactly. We don't know. She's probably but one either and way, a half at this point. Either way, more than Cersei. That <laughs> that is true. Who doesn't even have well, any elephants? Hey, who knows what Clyburn's cooked up? There could be some weird Frankenstein's uh, deal kind of happen there. So if you remember, so one last thing, right? So Danny has this vision, um, right? Earl in one of the early seasons, she has a vision, and the two scenes I remember from the vision are Danny walking into the throne room in the Red Keep, huh. right, um, with snow falling on the ground and the roof, like, you know, destroyed, possibly by fire, and a visual, and an image of a dragon silhouette flying over King's Landing. 
Oh, interesting. And okay. I think I think we'll so back. I think we're heading for you know that. Okay. Do you think so? They've obviously tried to also convince us that Arya's next big kill is going to be Cersei. I feel like that's just too much. You know, it's too much leading there. The green eyes. I I predict that it's not going to be Arya killing Cersei. We got to figure out who else has got green eyes. It has to be green eyes. Does Jamie have green eyes? Yeah, she's not going to kill him. She's already kind of made her peace with him. No, 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 no. Oh, Ari has to kill someone with green yeah, eyes. Yeah, yeah, oh, exactly. I was talking about yeah, yeah. kill Cersei. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't know who has green eyes. Yeah, I know. So, some listener will know. Tell Indeed. us. All right, that was fun. That was long. Um, all right, friends. The show, the show is long. This show is. This episode is long. <laughs> I kind of like the night is dark and full of spoilers, but. <laughs> all right, let's let everybody go. How about well, this episode is dark and full of spoilers? Yeah, perfect. All right. Uh, he's at Bobby Chesney. I'm at Steve underscore Vladek. We are at NSL Podcast. I would say stay safe out there, but, you know, it's exam time. I'll still say adios.